0: Welcome to Thoughts on Record, podcast of the Ottawa Institute of Cognitive Behavioral Therapy. I'm your host, Dr. P. Kelly. Each week, we explore topics of interest relevant to mental health clinicians and consumers. That said, if you're generally interested in psychology, the brain, dynamics of human behavior, and other aspects of the incredible journey that is the human experience, you've come to the right place. Now, without further delay, here's today's episode. Dr. Uma Naidu is a board-certified psychiatrist, professional chef, and nutrition specialist. She is currently the director of the Nutritional and Metabolic Psychiatry Department at the Massachusetts General Hospital, where she consults on nutritional interventions for the psychiatrically and medically ill. She also teaches at the Cambridge School of Culinary Arts. She blogs for Harvard Health and Psychology Today and has just completed a unique video cooking series for the MGH Academy, which teaches nutritional psychiatry using culinary techniques in the kitchen. Dr. Naidu has appeared as a mental health and nutrition expert on Live with Kelly and Ryan, The Today Show, 700 Club, Impact Theory, and has been featured in The Wall Street Journal, Shape, Parade, The Boston Globe, Mind Body Green, and more. All right, Dr. Uma Naidu, welcome so much to Thoughts on Record. How are you doing today?
1: I'm well, thanks. Thanks for having me.
0: You are very welcome. Uh, Dr. Naidu, I am so delighted to have you here today to touch on some of the themes in your new book, This Is Your Brain on Food. I thought it was an excellent read, and I really liked the way the book was broken down by mental disorders with some really specific evidence-based suggestions around how we can think about food and nutrition in the context of each of these areas of challenge. I know I have a lot of questions for you today that I hope will extend some of the topics that you've covered in the book, the Interface Between Nutrition and Mental Health is such a fascinating area of study, and I know one which many of my clients and colleagues are really deeply interested in. So again, Dr. Naidu, thank you so much for being here today.
1: Well, thanks so much for having me, Pete. I'm excited to be here.
0: Excellent. Okay, well, you have a really interesting background. You're a psychiatrist, you're a professional chef, you're a nutrition specialist. Can you speak about how and why you combine all of these different perspectives together to write this book?
1: I think that these uh, areas of my life came together naturally just by pursuing things that I love to do. I clearly love to eat. Uh, I learned to cook later in life and I love to cook, but I think it does stem from my family. I uh, spent a lot of time with my maternal grandparents during the day. My book is actually dedicated to my maternal grandmother because my mom was in medical school during the day. So I would actually just uh, hang out with her and watch her prepare fresh foods, prepare Vegetables from the garden, eat lunch with my grandparents, sit down, talk with them, had a lot of social interaction, but I also learned things like yoga and meditation from them. And in the extended family, there were a lot of physicians and a couple of Ayurvedic practitioners, so I naturally absorbed that. When I started um, in my residency in psychiatry, I therefore felt a real gap. Um, I knew that I loved mental health and I wanted to be in the field, but I felt that just pulling out a prescription pad and finding a form of therapy for someone was simply not enough. And early on in my career, I had an aha moment with a patient when I learned that, you know, interpreting nutrition information to him helped him want to make a lifestyle change because he came in yelling at me because he thought I caused him to gain weight um, after prescribing Prozac. And I knew from the data on my computer that his baseline weight was already high. It was related to the new medication, but he was also drinking a super large cup of coffee, Dunkin' Donuts coffee, which we love in Boston. And he, um, I was able to stop him and say, you know, Jeebo, what did you put in your coffee today? Partly distracting him, but I knew I was onto something. I just was trying to understand better. And he was putting more than a quarter cup of processed cream and eight teaspoons of sugar without even thinking about it. And proving to him that these were empty calories, I saw his eyes light up, you know, like a light bulb went off. And that was also my aha moment because the fact that he understood he could make a change was very powerful. And the fact that I knew to direct or help guide him, that really made me want to include nutritional information in everything moving forward. So I you know, went on a path to study more um, and culinary training came later in my career just because I loved Julia Child. She was my food hero. And when I heard that she did this later in her life and she was known for her culinary career, I thought, why not me? Um, and that's how it came together.
0: Excellent. So it sounds like the, bu- the book ultimately was a real passion project for you and brought all spheres of, or at least many of the spheres of being together in one package.
1: I guess the book is a culmination of who I am and also my career following things that I love to do. And it was a way to share that message with more people, uh, which I really didn't realize when I was writing it, but it, it has grown to be important that way.
0: Excellent. Well, that really shines through in the book. So mission accomplished as far as that goes. Thank you. One bit of context that I just want to provide before we embark on this discussion is that social media, the internet, etc., they're all crammed with purported cure-alls. And everybody seems to be selling a cure for what ails people out there. Dr. Nadeau, can you speak to the effect size of food in the context of the treatment of mental illness? Are we talking about a small, medium, a large impact? Is it more supportive? Is it complementary? what should be the expectations of clients with respect to the potential impact of supplements or nutrition on their symptoms or the management of ongoing conditions
1: so i think that's a great question i think that this that food is a very powerful tool in our mental health journey it is meant to complement medications or therapy that you are taking or being prescribed, Um, I always suggest to individuals that they discuss any nutrition intervention with their doctor. But it is meant to be there and can be a part of any mental health treatment plan because we have to eat. We eat several times a day. And my answer to that is why not do it in an optimal way to improve our mental well-being? And uh, you know I don't the, the thing that I'm very clear about is med- as medications and therapy are not replaced by nutrition. They're really meant to work together. But there are also many people who have come forward. As- especially during the pandemic, where they're using my book as a guide, as a companion, as almost a compendium of a way to feel better. So they're feeling a little bit blue, but they're not necessarily needing a medication. They're feeling stressed or they can't sleep. And they've come forward and really said that they use it as a guide to feel emotionally better. Um, on the other hand, individuals who have serious mental illness, um, a manic episode, a severe episode of depression with suicidal ideation, a loss of touch with reality. While food can always be part of helping someone, that first step for them may be an emergency room visit, seeing a doctor immediately, maybe to some type of program at the hospital. So those types of conditions obviously want more urgent care first, um, and nutrition can always be a part of the solution moving forward.
0: Yes, all that really makes me think of Dr. Lisa Feldman Barrett's model of the construction of emotions where... The interoceptive sensations in our body really are critical to how we construct the experience of emotions. And what I'm always telling my own clients is that if you're not eating properly, if you're not getting good sleep, et cetera, exercising, it's going to be very difficult for you to regulate your physiology. And when your physiology isn't regulated, it's going to be very difficult to have emotional regulation. Leveraging the opportunity of food three or four times a day seems to be a really no-brainer as far as I'm concerned.
1: Completely correct.
0: So I noticed in the book that inflammation seems to be a thread that runs through almost all of the food-based strategies with with respect to managing symptoms of mental illness. If I've got that correct, can you elaborate a little bit on the role that inflammation plays with respect to brain health and mental health?
1: Uh, More and more research is showing that inflammation is really the underpinning mechanism um, that underlies conditions like depression, anxiety, cognitive disorders, and and that research has really come forward as there's also the burgeoning research around the gut microbiome, the gut-brain connection. And the reason it is a threat is because it is so vitally important. Conditions like Alzheimer's are being called type 3 diabetes uh, because of the level of inflammation that actually can be reversed if the correct measures nutritionally and otherwise uh, involving lifestyle can be undertaken. So, I think an important message and one that actually came through during COVID is that those individuals who succumbed from COVID or suffered worse side effects from the illness and survived also had coexisting uh, uh, or pre-morbid conditions and metabolic health came forward as one of the problems we really are struggling with in this country in addition to mental illness. So it turns out that about 88% of Americans have an abnormal metabolic health factor. And uh, that's not surprising, given that we mostly eat a standard American diet for the most part. And our foods are heavy in processed, ultra-processed packaged foods and highly sugared foods. And that's not meant to be a statement of blame. It's it's kind of the way things are at. We also need to take responsibility for it. And I am saying that we need to examine it and change um, you know, change what we are doing because food manufacturers are not going to change what they're making. So it's for us to be under, uh, sort of educated and understand what we're putting in our body and the choices that we have, how much time we spend in the cereal or cracker or cookie aisle versus the fresh vegetables and the uh, you know organic meat section, if that's something that's affordable, or at least, you know, clean sources of protein that you're able to get. Um, so I think that that becomes critical for us to understand that the power is at the end of our fork and inflammation is so critically related. I like to say a happy gut is a happy mood because most conditions actually involve some gut inflammation of some kind. And I've seen it clinically. Um, I've seen people feel better as we work on adjusting their nutritional psychiatry plan to reduce that inflammation in the gut and symptoms really gradually improve. So it, it is actually, it is very much a, a theme that we should understand in nutritional psychiatry.
0: Is it that inflammation perturbs normal brain function via neurochemicals? Does it disrupt electrical activity? Uh, do we know exactly how inflammation interrupts normal brain function?
1: So it starts with the gut-brain connection. The gut and brain are uh, connected inextricably because they arise from the exact same cells in the embryo. Then they're connected by the vagus nerve, the 10th cranial nerve, which acts as a bidirectional chemical messaging superhighway between these two organs. So when you think about how food is digested, think about um, about it this way. A healthy meal gets digested with healthy breakdown products like short-chain fatty acids, which then through the bloodstream and through the single cell layer of the the lining of the gut gets, gets transmitted you know, to parts of the body, but also the brain and short chain fatty acids have a good and positive impact. When you're eating a less healthy, say a fast food, junk food kind of meal, bad baked down products are formed by the digestion of food, which are more toxic. And those are more damaging to that single cell lining of the gut um, and can pierce through creating conditions over time, like leaky gut. So leaky gut then, you know, has a, has a uh, in this ecosystem has, a, has an effect on the inflammation of the brain. And it's sort of this, we need to think about it as a whole system. So it starts with the food and we can therefore tweak that to improve and then improve any neuroinflammation that gets set up by how we're eating.
0: Is that message that's being re- relayed up through the vagus nerve then essentially being interpreted as a stressor that's going on in the periphery? Like the, the brain feels that there's some insult that is ongoing within the body?
1: Right. So the chemical messages are bidirectional and they continue all the time. Um, so this neurotransmission is critical to the to whatever impact it's having on the brain. So yes, it's, it's then conveying a message that is Pro-inflammatory versus reduction of inflammation, reduction of stress, and you know the neurons being in, in more of a calm and um, in, a, in more of a calm environment.
0: Just a point for the listeners, my background is in psychoneuroimmunology, at least some of the early grad work that I did. And we used to study chronic immune activation as like a chronic stressor, much like a divorce would be or unemployment or things like that. So it's probably worth making the point that if you're putting these inflammatory foods into your body, it's like subjecting your body to a chronic stress, much like unemployment would be a chronic stressor, or you know, a divorce, things like that. And your, of course, chronic stress tends to lead to mental illness. So perhaps that's one pathway. I'm sure it's very complicated, but perhaps that's one pathway by which the dietary factors are exerting an influence upon the brain. Can you speak a little bit more about the enteric nervous system and the and the microbiome and that whole uh, system? That's really fascinating to me. I'd love to know about how the modern diet might be messing with the microbiome and perhaps what a more traditional or ancestral diet would have done to confer health upon the microbiome.
1: So if we think about um, our food ancestrally, you know, um, sugar was an important nutrient for the flight and fight, uh, fight response, because if you were, um, you know, fleeing from a tiger who was about to eat you, then you needed that burst of glucose to help you, um, run and, and run away and save yourself. However, what industrialization and the food system did to what we eat has also evolved because we're no longer picking fresh berries off a tree to obtain a natural form of sugar. We are consuming foods that are largely uh, uh, contain you know, things like high fructose corn syrup that are labeled in a way that, is often misleading. Uh, it's all done within the labeling laws, but it's misleading to the consumer. So something that's labeled whole grain might have a ton of added sugar in the cereal. And the mom buys it thinking, this, this sounds good. I heard this on a podcast. I should buy the cereal. But in fact, it's mostly refined grains, a ton of sugar, and maybe a little bit of whole grain as the very last ingredient. So all of that changed from you know our ancestral time Times. And the amount of sugar that we are consuming through, um, through artificial sweetness, through how foods are, are manufactured, including savory foods, people are often mistaken by realizing, by not realizing that ketchup, pasta sauces, salad blessings all have a ton of sugar. So when if we were to walk ourselves back from the system and think about how it's impacting us, if we're eating a diet that is largely processed, ultra-processed junk foods processed um, fast foods um, you know fast food french fries have added sugar to make them hyper palatable that way we crave them when we go to the dri- uh, drive through um we buy we upsize and then when we upsize we eat that whole bag of fries because they uh, tap into our cravings are our, our uh, hyper and they're made to be hyper palatable um so When we're eating all of these foods, and then the other issue with fast foods is they use processed vegetable oils, and those are more cost-effective for them, but they're pro-inflammatory for our body. So they're just driving the inflammation in the gut, driving the inflammation in our body. Putting all of this together, what happens is... For individuals like ourselves that uh, are mostly consuming the standard American diet, sort of without awareness that it's causing these impacts in our body, it's not just our weight line, the waistline that's suffering anymore. COVID showed that. Definitely comorbid conditions were critical. But the other thing is that people are just not that healthy. So um, we need to understand that the food as it's being broken down, is nutritionally deficient for our bodies. You know, a good tip that I like to give people is that uh, it's not a whole food if it has an expiration date, because, you know, when you go to to buy oranges, you don't see an expiration date on orange. You know, it's a, it's a fresh food. And either you store it correctly and it lasts a little bit or, you know, it, it's it goes bad and you throw it out. So, so the, Idea is for us to move in the direction of healthier, more wholesome foods. Back actually in that way to ancestral times and the correct use of sugar. So, little, some sort of serving of you know blueberries is a great source for you, unless you have a problem with type two diabetes or your doctors asked you to really significantly cut back even on sugar from natural sources like fruit. But you know, for the most part, eating healthy servings of vegetables, going back to what those traditional so called Mediterranean and other diets talk about the Mind Diet and others, they actually have help wholesome foods in them. And what I would rather have people pay attention to is portion size and the quality of their foods versus counting calories, which is what tends to happen in the U.S. around fat dieting and that type of stuff. So the food we eat interacts with these nervous systems. The breakdown products, as I explained earlier, interacts with that gut lining. And the impact, therefore, is can be quite devastating on our brain and the rest of our body.
0: So what are the specific role of the bacteria or flora that are living in our, in our guts? I'm curious how they, what role they play in this whole process.
1: So for, for example, uh, when I mentioned eating uh, vegetables or having some berries, vegetables, uh, fruit, beans, nuts, seeds, legumes, healthy whole grains, all contain fiber, a very important nutrient for the gut microbes. That's how the gut microbes can actually thrive. And helping them thrive becomes a very critical part of our health because then they can function, the gut microbes, you know, from vitamin production to helping with circadian rhythm, which is our internal body clock, to immunity, to mental health, to so many more. They actually have a function. Uh, When we eat vegetables, the um, anti-inflammatory, antioxidant properties, the plant polyphenols interact with the gut microbes. And that interaction is very positive for the body and for the gut microbiome. So examples like that sort of unpack a little bit of how food then interacts with the gut microbiome and can be very positive for us um, to help with uh, gut healing. So for example, we know from research that healing of any inflammation in the gut takes about 28 days to a month. But we also know from research, the meal that you eat, even though though you may not immediately feel it, within hours, the gut microbes are responding. Um, You just see the effect build up over time. So uh, it it becomes really important just being thoughtful about what we are eating.
0: Is there any evidence that supplementing with probiotics is effective in this regard or can help with this inflammatory process? And if so, does it need to be combined with dietary changes as well? I'm imagining someone who's on a standard American diet just taking probiotics on their own isn't probably not gonna get the same benefit as if they combined it with increased fiber and things like that. Is that a reasonable assumption?
1: That's a reasonable assumption. The how how I like to say it is that we can't we cannot supplement out of a bad diet. So The fact that we're deficient in in our dietary needs, we can't just take a supplement to correct that. Just like you've heard, you can't exercise out of a bad diet. So in a similar way, we need to be changing a few things and do it slowly and steadily. Um, I'm not against supplements, but I do think that we can try with whole foods first. You can eat fermented foods, which bring back those live active cultures. You can eat probiotic rich foods like yogurts, you know, hands with probiotics. Um, You can can do many things to help along uh, your your subtle changes in your diet. You don't have to do them all at once. But if you're pretty much eating at a fast food restaurant every day, taking a probiotic is not going to make that much of a difference. The other thing with probiotic supplements that you take in a pull form is that many people don't realize, you know, if they stop taking it, the changes that are being incurred in the gut microbiome because they're taking a probiotic, will stop. If they stop taking the supplement, it stops. So you've got to either, if that's working for you, you've got to be very consistent about taking it. And my feeling is we have to eat every day. We eat several meals a day. Why not do it through your food? It's so much easier for you. And then if you feel you need a little bit more, absolutely. You, know, you, you, you can actually get prebiotics through your food. Um, you can eat fermented foods. There are many ways to tweak that.
0: Are there any compounds that can only be readily absorbed through supplements, or perhaps obtained through supplements?
1: There's certain things that you know don't don't necessarily come in food form, um, and uh, or there there are times, for example, that research has shown, for example, that saffron, a culinary uh, uh, element, you know, has a very good amount of evidence for improved depression, but the amounts used in the studies were much higher than what you would use to make uh, any type of meal. And also saffron is a very expensive spice. It's delicious. It's a beautiful spice to cook with, but, it, but it, is, you, you, it is expensive and you don't use much of it. That's an example of where I would suggest to someone, if you are talking to your doctor about a supplement uh, for your mood, definitely consider something with saffron because the amounts that are able to be obtained in a supplement are very different. Um, like that, there are other things that we don't obtain through food like NAC. Um, So that's another example of a time that, you know, we might use a supplement.
0: Dr. Naidu, can we just take one of the disorders discussed in the book? I mean, certainly there's many that are discussed, but I'll give you the choice. Maybe pick one of the disorders and perhaps walk through what you learned in putting this book together with respect to nutritional or food-based strategies for helping with symptoms. So whether it be depression or ADHD or sleep, I would love to walk through just one of these just a little bit.
1: Sure, the um, I think that uh, I would probably pick anxiety, since so many people are struggling with stress, and I think that some of the things I've learned uh, from my work clinically are very poignant because when people adjust their diets. in a a way that's not good, they can have an uptick of symptoms or even new symptoms of anxiety develop. And I think it's important to know that, um, that, you know, consuming those uh, things like artificial sweeteners, many of them actually drive anxiety versus uh, helping to improve anxiety. Um, Processed vegetable oils are pro-inflammatory. Those added Uh, added sugars, added refined uh, products that are processed and ultra-processed are just not great for our body. So when we start to adjust and and cut back on those foods and move towards eating healthier whole foods, eating foods that are rich in omega-3 fatty acids, for example, like uh, fatty seafood, salmon or sardines, anchovies, or um, walnuts, chia seeds, and flax seeds. Uh, those can be very helpful. Um, vitamin D rich foods can be helpful. Um, turmeric with a pinch of black pepper can be helpful. All of these can, in fact, you know, start to improve. But And don't ignore things like tea. Chamomile tea, passionflower can be very, very calming to the system. Um, and I... I really found that when people did a combination of limit, limiting and cutting back on the foods that were driving symptoms of anxiety in combination with adding in many more foods that were helping anxiety, you can over time find the right balance uh, for them, which which I think can be very, very powerful in helping them feel better.
0: Caffeine is a substance that we consume quite a bit of uh, really worldwide, And in the context of anxiety, sometimes caffeine can be quite problematic, but there's many folks who are physiologically, perhaps even psychologically dependent on caffeine and, or did they just really enjoy it? You know, it's part of their morning ritual or perhaps their early afternoon ritual. How would you help a client think through the balance between their consumption of caffeine and some untoward effects it may have within the context of anxiety?
1: It's a great question. Caffeine is an otherwise healthy substance, but it's usually the amounts we consume that can be problematic. It's also the impact it has on the on different individuals also vary because of bioindividuality and the gut microbiomes being so unique in each one of us. Studies have shown for anxiety that keeping caffeine consumption to less than four hundred milligrams a day generally work for most people, but not everyone. I've also had individuals try half-caf or decaf and feel jittery, in which case I talk about body intelligence as a pillar in nutritional psychiatry. Paying attention to that means that you are guided to say, well, unfortunately coffee may not be for you. The second point about caffeine that is that becomes problematic is what people add to their coffee. It's not the caffeine itself. A black coffee can actually be pretty healthy for a lot of people, but, uh, Um, They usually add in a ton of processed creamer, like my patient Bo, a ton of added sugar or artificial sweeteners. And a lot of that then muddies the benefit of uh, the caffeine itself. The other factor is having caffeine early in the day, making sure you're hydrating well the rest of the time with water. And that way, if you're having it, say, before 12 noon or before 1 or 2 p.m., you are not going to be negatively impacting your sleep. And if you need a pick-me-up in the afternoon, a good one that I like to suggest to people is a cup of green tea because you get an uplifting feeling of energy. Um, It has several benefits some great antioxidants like uh, EGCG and L-theanine, Plus, people feel a little bit more focused when they drink green tea in the afternoon. So, it's a great one for that little bit of a pick-me-up.
0: If someone's giving consideration to the impact that their diet may be having on their mental health, and of course, more broadly, their physical health, what would be some signs that perhaps they're not on the right track? What kind of signals would someone's body be giving them that what they're putting into their body is not being tolerated very well or not aligned with maybe the direction they want to go health-wise? It
1: could be anything from digestive issues, discomfort, bloating, gas, uh, constipation. It could be brain fog. Um, It could be headaches, um, fatigue. Um, All of these, believe it or not, can be related to not only how they're eating, but can improve their mental well-being just by making some tweaks um, to to being more thoughtful about what they're consuming.
0: And of course, many of our clients who are anxious, they're going to be prone to hyper-focusing on these things. They may even become sort of compulsive about monitoring right. for symptoms or monitoring intake or being really uh, rigid about food intake, what they can eat, when they can eat it, all these kind of things. How have you struck the balance with your own clients with respect to putting common sense principles in place, but not creating a new problem where people are hyper-focused on food and they've sort of almost traded in one problem for another? How have you nav- navigated that as a clinician?
1: So that's actually, um, although it's not recognized by the National Eating, Eating Disorders Association of America, um, is really a condition that I describe in my book called orthorexia, which is really becoming hyper focused on a healthy habit that can be problematic ultimately. Um, and so uh, I am very careful to work with people around providing them the autonomy to help buy into making the decisions work on the things that they truly feel they want to work on so you know if you're coming in and you're not very serious about doing this it's just not going to work and what I mean by that is you cannot just add turmeric with a pinch of black pepper to a tea twice in a week and say hey you know why isn't this helping my anxiety this is a consistent lifestyle change it's building healthy habits which we know take a certain amount of time to set in and I've learned with good uh with with running a clinic for some time now is that you start slow, you start slow and steady and you really build on the momentum of how someone starts to feel better when they make a healthy habit change. The moment they start to feel better, they want to do so much more. So the idea is not to prevent them with a list of 10 things to start. It's to start with something that they feel they want to change. Like someone came in the other day and, you know, realized that for the last two years, they've, eat ice cream every single night compared to before the pandemic, when ice cream was something that the family went out and had on a Saturday, but they also took a stroll to the ice cream store. So there was built-in exercise, there was outdoor time, and uh, the portion was smaller. Now that he's having it at home, he, you know, takes out the bowl of, of uh, the size that he enjoys and fills it up with ice cream. So, I you know, I started right there with him. What if, if you've identified that this is problematic? Can we start there? Can we replace that with something that's made from fruit, have less of it, um, have a small piece of extra dark natural chocolate, uh, which was going to give you some brain boosting ingredients, um, have a little bit of berries, you know, change it up a little bit? So you start with something that a person has identified. Once it's Start to engage in that and can sustain that, you build on it. And most often people are emailing, calling me to say, I'm feeling, I'm starting to feel the change. I want to do more. What else can I do? And that's really when you tap into the momentum of positive change, helping that individual along the path.
0: Are you a fan of elimination diets? Is that a tool that you would use in the course of helping to optimize the strategy?
1: I'm not a fan of elimination diets, but I do eliminate foods in clinical context. So if someone um, has is suffering with anxiety and we worked on a nutritional psychiatry plan, and I've identified that they do consume a lot of uh, you know processed breads and gluten from sources like that, um, I might ask them to cut back on that and see if their symptoms improve. But I don't start with eliminating foods because what I notice psychologically, people feel deprived. It ends up having a boomerang effect, which is not positive for their health, their mental health or their waistline. So, you know, working with adding foods in and limiting the foods that are problematic, uh, cutting back on those fast food meals, cutting back on the frozen dinners or frozen pizzas, those become an important part of the equation.
0: I want to ask you about two hot button issues. The first one is, are we in a position to settle the ADHD and sugar link once and for all?
1: So you know, I think this is interesting. There's a, there's a ton of correlation between symptoms of ADHD and those added and refined sugars. I, you know, I've seen it clinically. I am not sure what the controversy is about. Um, Colorants, dyes, stabilizers in foods, in processed foods, worsen symptoms of ADHD. I've seen it clinically. When we help uh, kids and families to clean up their diets a little bit, they start to show improvement.
0: Okay, and the second issue that I want to ask you about is gluten. This one seems to cause quite a bit of controversy all the way from it's the source of all problems to all the way to, you know, it's it's a non-problem except for those who have celiac. Can you speak to your lens on gluten and, you know, how you see it influencing psychiatric symptoms?
1: So it's it's very specific to the source of gluten, um, an artisanal loaf of sourdough bread, Baked fresh at a local bakery or a farmer's market made with a sourdough starter is has a fermentation process involved. Is very different from a processed sliced, sliced white bread that is shelf-stable, that lasts on your counter when you go away for a week's vac- vacation. Very different products. Um, secondly, people with, obviously, with celiac non-aceliac gluten sensitivity might need to be more careful. I don't feel it needs to be eliminated. I think it's the quality of whole grain that you eat. Whole grains are very important for the microbiome. Do you have to eat a ton of it if you're struggling with your weight? That's where the nuance of mental health and nutritional psychiatry comes in. If you've taken a medication that has caused you to gain weight, we may have to work with you on being careful about which carbohydrates or where you obtain them and whole grains fall into that category. So does gluten. Um, but if someone is at, at a healthy weight and working on and you know, using these different plans to help symptoms, unless they're showing an uptick of anxiety where gluten has been shown to be problematic, there's no need to just start off by excluding it. Um, so I would rather people aim for better sources of gluten, be thoughtful about where they're obtaining it from, everything in moderation. Um, think about other whole grains that you could use. Um, you know, buckwheat, farro, spelt. There's so many that you can change up. Um, Barley uh, uh, that you can change up. Um, Use less of it in the dishes that you're making um, and still get the benefit of the whole grains, uh, you know, for your diet.
0: I also want to ask you about some, I guess, more recent evolutions in some of the food strategies that people are employing, namely uh, the carnivore diet and the keto diet. Now, not exactly the same thing, but both of these emphasize... Uh, a lack of carbs ultimately, and one is certainly very high fat, and the other is you know, a lot of protein perhaps with fat uh, in the form of meat. What do you think about these dietary strategies? How do they strike you from the position that you're in?
1: I consider myself diet agnostic. And so if someone comes into my office um, asking me about you know, being on that diet and wanting to know about their mental health, my role is really to help them tweak whatever they're doing Uh, whether that be vegan or carnivore uh, or in between or or keto um, to sort of include anything that I feel is missing from a nutritional standpoint and, or the nutritional psychiatry standpoint. I think that what's problematic about these different diets is that they polarized. Um, You know, it's this eat this, not that mentality. Eat only meat, never eat a vegetable or never eat a bean or eat this amount of fat and never eat a carb or cut. Back so low on the carbs that it, you know, some people might need carbs. Um, So, in fact, our bodies all need carbs. So, I think it's about finding the balance that works for you. I I find that being polarized, no matter what the name of the so called program is, um, it's very difficult for people because they walk into my office not only confused. They feel like they have to give up more foods. They feel like there's certain foods that are demonized and they cannot touch them. Um, And it leads to people not enjoying their food. And as a chef, I actually care that food is delicious and that people enjoy their meals. Food is a very primitive drive. You know, when we're born, what happens when a baby is born? You know, they, we want to check their lungs and we want them to cry. And after the baby's cleaned up, the baby feeds. You know, eating is a very primitive drive. So saying to people, no, you have to exclude this entire food group, or you can never eat something. And that, I'm not just referring to the diets you mentioned, I'm referring to a lot of different diets that say you cannot eat this, you can only include that, Um, becomes very difficult for people. I'd rather them find a sustainable way to them better emotional health that is stable. And within that if they need to include exclusive gluten or they need to at times eat more fat for different reasons, that can be tweaked. But I really like it to be a personalized plan and for people not to come in with an attitude of, no, I should never look at a vegetable and only eat steak. I mean, I think that just doesn't work. It's not sustainable.
0: No, I totally agree. And it really feels ideological in that space, right? Everybody puts their flag in the sand and says, no, this yeah. is the way you got to do this it. This is
1: where you have to do it, yeah.
0: Right. And there's so much genetic diversity. We all have different ancestral pasts. There's no way that one particular diet is going to be a fit for every single human being on planet Earth. It's, it just doesn't seem plausible.
1: I agree. I agree.
0: What do you think about the strategy of intermittent fasting? Fasting seems to be something that's really quite popular right now. People talk a lot about autophagy and trying to, you know, improve mitochondrial health, things like that. How do you see fasting fitting into this? Uh, space.
1: I think that with nutritional psychiatry, we don't yet know longer term outcomes for intermittent fasting. I think that the evidence for medical help, autophagy, for uh, mitochondrial repair are very good. You know, there's the studies that have shown some good evidence. So I think, again, it comes back to the individual, how you discussing with your doctor, trying form of fasting, um, you know, for, uh, for mental health, we just don't know yet. Some of my clients have said uh, more um, just, just reporting back to me that they've noticed some better, better level of focus, um, things like that. But you know, I I don't yet, we don't yet have enough evidence to say intermittent fasting should be the definitive way to treat X condition in mental health.
0: For someone who's thinking about making some changes to their diet, and let's assume that, you know, all things being equal, they don't have any special medical conditions that need to be attuned to or food allergies or intolerances or anything like that. Is there a type of diet that you would recommend as a good solid starting point where people could build off of that pretty reliably?
1: So, going back to healthy whole foods eating, you know, um, look at thinking about your plate, have your nutritional psychiatry plate be largely plant-based foods, vegetables, beans, nuts, seeds, legumes. Uh, For sweet, have a small serving of berries. Lean into healthy fats, olive oil, um, avocado. You know, add those leafy greens. Leafy greens, rich in folate, extremely important in mental health. Low folate associated with depression. Um, you know, add, choose clean sources of protein. So whether you have poultry, seafood, whether you eat tofu, you know, whether you eat just adding in chickpeas uh, as your source of protein, have to be a good source of protein. Um, there are many, many different ways to go, um, but the source of your food, rather than counting the calories and the portion size, is important. You can really load up that nutritional psychiatry plate with your sulfurane-rich veggies like cauliflower, cabbage. Brussels sprouts, great antioxidants, low calorie um, you can lean into the healthy fats and you can create a balance that actually could be super tasty and don't forget spices they not only have great brain benefits they flavor up food.
0: I fell off my habit for a little while but I was into sprouting for a while yeah.
1: and uh, <laughs> fermented fruits yeah.
0: yeah so so tasty. Many clients who are listening may be on psychotropic medications. Are there any special considerations around thinking through nutritional modifications and how that could interact with medication or or even interfere with medication, perhaps?
1: You always want to be careful with psychotropic medications. You always want to include your doctor in this discussion. Um, You know, I feel that if you are taking psychotropic medication, you've struggled with some of the side effects of those involving your doctor in a discussion of how you can use nutritional interventions to help. Um, There's some case reports of the ketogenic diet in this regard being helpful, but again, that's an individual discussion. It's not a one size fits all. Um, They're uh, also eating A, nutritious diet becomes even more critical, but being careful about, say, the type of fruit you're eating if you've gained weight from psychotropic medication, that becomes an important nuance to pay attention to. Um, So definitely, you know, dietary and nutritional interventions alongside everything else are important.
0: There's many recipes within the book. Do you have a favorite in there that you would direct people to that is really close to your heart or close to your uh, stomach, I guess? <laughs>
1: <laughs> my One of my favorite recipes is my... Um my lentil soup, which is my dal recipe, because I grew up eating that and I tweaked the recipe for the book. And it's great because you can add in, um, if you're plant based or vegetarian, you can have it with, say, spinach and uh, you can put in veggies, but you can also do that and you can add, you know, uh, roast pieces of roast to cooked baked chicken to it. So you can you can really doctor up that with a really good base of. Um, a great uh, lentil soup, which is rich in fiber, nutrients, um, iron, and so many things and make it more flavorful. I happen to like it with spinach and with lots of spices.
0: Excellent. I'm going to try that out. I haven't had a chance to try any of the recipes, but I've got it on my list for sure. Great. I am going to ask you an unfair question, but I'm a big fan of having... You know, simple takeaways for clients, because oftentimes they're bombarded with information. Even in the context of a therapy session, we say so much, you wonder how much they're taking out of the the session. What would be one thing that people could start to do today to maybe ameliorate their relationship with food as far as managing their psychological health goes?
1: Um, What I'm asking everyone to do is ask yourself, is there one unhealthy habit you picked up during the pandemic that is food-related? Maybe it's cookies, maybe it's buying tons of candy, maybe it's the tub of ice cream like my patient the other day. Um, Ask yourself if you're ready to take a step back. Most people would would be ready if they've identified that it's an issue for them Um, because awareness is, of course, one of the first and most important steps. So I ask people to start there and see if you can find a healthy replacement. Uh, I have a recipe for ice cream made from bananas. Just eat, you don't have to eat the whole tub all at once. Um, You know, I love to make uh, fresh uh, spinach crisps in the oven. Uh, 20 minute recipe, two or three ingredients made from fresh spinach instead of potato chips or pretzels. So I think that uh, if we just start to think a little bit out of the box, whatever that habit is, See if you can change it. And if, you, if you're if you a perfect human being and you haven't picked up any healthy habit, unhealthy habit during the pandemic, then my my suggestion is start by add, adding in um, a little bit of turmeric with a pinch of black pepper to super smoothie or tea. To start to just slowly, it's easy to do. You don't have to prepare the veggies, buy the veggies, cook the veggies. I'd love you to do that. But if you're just looking for something you can do, buy some organic powdered turmeric. Add it in with a pinch of black pepper. Start there. See if, you know, you can do that every day and build from there.
0: Excellent. Well, I want to give you the last word. Is there any last message that you'd like to convey to the audience? Or is there something that's really important to you that you'd like to get out into the world via this conversation?
1: I feel that food is the hidden tool in our tool belt that we haven't been using in mental health. Um, It can work collaboratively with everything else that we're doing. And the power is so autonomous. Unlike a prescription pad where you don't have the power, the power of food is at the end of your fork, your own fork. And I think that if we just realize that and can amplify our mental well-being through the use of food, that will serve any other treatment that you're doing.
0: Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. If people want to learn more about you or learn more about the book, where can they go?
1: You can go to my website, umanaidumd.com. You'll see links to the book, links to my new course, um, as well as uh, sign up for my newsletter. And you get my weekly updates all in one place on a Friday. Um, and follow me on social. We're always putting out updated research and new information. It's at D-R-U-M-A-N-A-I-D-O-O.
0: Well, excellent. Again, I highly recommend the book. It's it's really good read. Very, very interesting. And again, thanks so much for joining me today. I really appreciate it.
1: Thank you so much, Peter. It's a pleasure to talk with you.
0: Okay. Take good care.
1: Thank you. You too.
0: Well, I really hope that you enjoyed the podcast as much as I did. If you found value in the show, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us out too. And now for the mandatory disclaimer. This podcast represents the opinions of Dr. Kelly and that of his guests. Content of the podcast should not be taken as psychological advice and is for general information only. Please consult your mental health professional for any specific questions around your psychological health. In no way does listening to our content establish a psychologist-client relationship. While we make every effort to ensure that the information we are sharing is accurate, we welcome any comments, suggestions, or corrections of errors. All people, places, and scenarios mentioned in the podcast have been changed to protect patient confidentiality. Finally, this podcast should not be used in any legal capacity whatsoever, including but not limited to establishing a standard of care in a legal sense or as a basis for expert witness testimony. No guarantee is given regarding the accuracy of any statements or opinions made on the podcast.